Uh, real quick, um, this uh, sermon of Jesus, he's going to close by way of illustration, all of which everyone in this room knows because you've been reading ahead. What's the next story in chapter 8? Don't, don't look down. You're supposed to just be ready. Everybody's like, that's great. Yeah. And by the illustration, what Jesus is doing is calling his audience to bridge the gap from hearing to doing, from hearing to doing. He, his illustration leaves them. It leaves us with the question, what are you going to do about it? Uh, you have my instruction. Now, what are you going to do with it? Which path will you choose? And looking you know, back into the sermon, uh, which gate will you enter? Which path will you take? And depending on the decision you make, uh, there's, there's one or the other. There's either standing or there's falling. And um, that's just how it goes. So let's take a look. Please stand and uh, let's give our full attention to his word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to the end. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we, um, as we review your teaching and we consider it in light of this illustration, Lord, that you would impress strongly upon our hearts. It is for you to instruct. It's for us to obey, to follow through with what you teach. Lord, you know what is best. You're not just some kind of, of arbitrary lawgiver, but you know what is best for us. You know how to acquire glory for yourself, and you know how to bless your people. So Lord, help us to hear and help us to heed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Before we... I got a dry mouth this morning. Just have these little cute little candies. I'll try not to knock it against my teeth so that you can hear it in the microphone. Before we look at the, uh, the implications of the illustration, let's examine some of its parts. Um, I, I do believe that the illustration is, um, as we would say, perspicuous. It's, it's clear, it's easy to follow. Um, but I've heard that some people struggle with illustrations because they're such concrete thinkers. And so I don't want to uh, just leave it with that. So we'll, we'll explain some of it. Um, there are two recipients uh, in the illustration of Jesus' teaching. One who hears and heeds the instruction, and the other hears and disregards his teaching. There are two builders, one wise and one foolish. There's two types of ground upon which they built their houses. The, the one ground is rock, the other is sand. Both encounter the same elements. I love you, Isaac. It's a manly sort of love. I don't want to wash that candy out of my mouth yet. Okay. 
Both encounter the same elements, rain, floods, and wind. And both experience a result. One house stands and the other falls. Now, the builders, of course, represent two different lives or two different ways of living. Those who hear Jesus' instruction and apply it to all the details of their life, that's one way of living. And those who hear the instruction of Jesus, but they disregard it, and then they live by their own wisdom. The elements, of course, represent everything that is contrary to us. Not just contrary to us as believers, but uh, in general, contrary to what is uh, against humanity, whether it be the loss of a loved one. That impacts every human being, doesn't it? That's what it could be, a serious illness, a job loss, an unfaithful spouse, a rebellious child, financial ruin, broken relationships, persecution. But it could also be success. Has success destroyed people? It could be ease, it could be fame, wealth, gain, luxury, all things that are frequently harmful to the soul. It could be an unbiblical philosophy or worldview like secularism, moral relativism, postmodernism, and the newest uh, predominant movement right now is absolute autonomy. I can do whatever I want. Uh, my truth may not be your truth. And then that has devolved into all kinds of bizarre uh, lifestyles, sexuality, and the rest. I can identify as whatever I want because that's for me to choose. I'm absolutely autonomous and independent of all other opinions, and um, no one has the right to provide me with input. I'm my own self. So the elements represent everything that has the potential to take us out, to ruin us. The two results represent the outcome, of course, of the two different lives after they've been battered by difficulty. The first stand firm because they lived by Jesus' enduring word. The second suffer a great fall because they rejected the wisdom of God. Now, because of the three previous sections which reference the final judgment, this great fall that Jesus talks about of those who reject his teaching, it must be a reference to the eternal fall. Uh, They are destroyed. Okay, they're destroyed. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who hear and heed the Lord, his instruction. In Luke's account of all of this, uh, he says, he records Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? None of this makes sense. Uh, A proclamation, a confession of lordship without following the Lord is impossible. So the kingdom of heaven is for those who hear and they heed. All others are told to depart from his presence on the day of judgment. So that is a a rather simple interpretation of the illustration. Let's look at it more closely now. Jesus says, therefore, whoever hears uh, these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him, I will consider him to be a wise man who built his house on the rock. So these sayings of mine, of course, his sayings refer to all that's been said so far in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through chapter seven where we're at now. But the greater context of Jesus' saying is, is much broader and far-reaching, which we'll address at the end. But of course, you already know, right? Genesis one to the end of Revelation. That's his word. But for now, we wanna to keep to the immediate context of his sermon. 
And so far, his sayings have addressed things pertaining to uh, those that belong to the kingdom. This is a kingdom sermon. This is about the kingdom. Uh, Those who belong to it, their disposition, that's how we began, their identity, responsibility, ethics, piety, spiritual discipline, with warnings of both judgment and reward. This is a summation of his sayings. And now, looking back on all that has been said, Jesus provides this illustration of the two builders. I just want you to listen carefully. One heard and heeded the sayings, and he enjoys all of the benefits. It doesn't mean that life is easy. That's not what this is about. But because of heeding the instruction of Christ, he enjoys the benefits that are described in the sermon. And another also heard everything, but did not heed his sayings, and he is the one that finds himself at a loss, a complete loss. So the illustration is about profit and loss, right? It's about reaping the benefits of doing versus hearing and doing nothing and reaping the consequences. One is a wide, wise builder who receives instruction and then begins to build. He's listened intently, and what he does is he follows meticulously. Now, he, he, he does that for a couple of reasons. He listens intently and he follows meticulously because there are other consequences out there. That's why Jesus, uh, throughout the sermon, he gives warnings about the consequences of not heeding. There are going to be results that you don't like if you don't listen. So the wise man, he listens carefully and as he builds, he builds meticulously. If his house is to stand the test of time, the torture of the elements, he must build on ground that is unmovable. He knows because of Jesus that what is founded on the rock and is fastened to it will endure with it. The weather can bring what it may, but because the rock endures, the structure will hold. So this man builds with confidence and he enjoys the safety of, what he, of where he built. But he who hears and does not obey Jesus' teaching Jesus said, this man is a fool. He's rejected the master builder's instruction and he builds how he pleases. Now, what is important about this is this particular builder is not to be confused for a builder who knows nothing. He has also heard all of the instructions from the master builder, the same instructions as the wise builder. But this builder thinks that he knows better than the master builder. So he builds where? The sand, he builds on something that should never be built on, just sand. Sand would actually shift as you're trying to build on it. Sand is really a moving target as you build on it. I remember when we were in Saudi Arabia, we were building, not building, well, we were building too, but we were filling sandbags for weeks and weeks. And I remember the place that we were uh, getting our sand from, uh, it it looked the same after weeks of pulling sand from there. I, I, when you dig, you, you hope to see progress, but when you dig in a desert of sand, uh, we filled hundreds of sandbags, and there was just no pit out there, okay? It was just, it's just, it's always filling in, it's always moving. How frustrating to build on something like that, and whatever structure is built upon it is just unstable from its inception. Only stubbornness, and outright rebellion could account for this kind of foolishness. I mean, you'd think, well, someone would start this way and go, this isn't working. The master builder was on to something. 
I'll move away from the beach, as it were, and up onto the granite or something. Something is better than this. Dirt is better than this. But no, it takes a fool to say, I'll make this work. I'll make this work. It's a fool to be that insistent. And so this person, because they were instructed but refused to listen, they deserve their plight. Their house, because of them, is destined to ruin and they have no one to blame but themselves. The wise builder has no one to praise but Jesus. Of course, Jesus' illustration applies to success or ruin in how all of us are going to decide to live our lives, whether it's according to godly instruction or in disregard of it. Listen, that are, those are the only two options that will occur in this room, right? Because we've all heard the instruction, and we're either going to do it or we're going to avoid it. We are those that have heard, but will we heed? Will we be the wise person that listens and obeys and lives to enjoy the blessing? Or will we be this fool who ignores and then suffers the consequences? I mean, it's clear from the scriptures that God created man and he gave man what we might say is the manufacturer's manual. I'd say the owner's manual, but we don't belong to ourselves. Amen? He's provided us everything with how to make the best use of one's life to represent him and honor the creator. And in the manual is an extensive list of warnings of what not to do. This shipwreck is over here, but success is here. Life is sacred. That's why Jesus came in the flesh. Life is sacred to him. And he wanted to give it his best. He wanted to provide an alternative to destruction. He wants man to avoid tragedy. Now, the sermon here on the mount just really scratches the surface when it comes to God's counsel. But in one way or another, I believe that it, it touches all of it. It touches all of it. Just looking back on this sermon, the wise man, he begins from Jesus' teaching with a disposition that is drawn from a heavenly perspective. We call it the Beatitudes. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 through 12. You know, nine times at the beginning of Jesus' sermon, he talks of those who endure some level of suffering, whether it's suffering from without or it's the internal conflict that we experience as sinner saints. The sinner inside of us is trying to get out. And the saint inside of us, because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, is trying to live for the glory of God. They're like two cats in a burlap bag. Okay, Have you guys noticed that in your life? If you haven't, I would say you're not saved. Okay, Because when the Spirit of God comes into uh, our lives, there's instant conflict with the sin nature. The battle begins. Romans chapter 7, it's there. Paul says the old man, the unredeemed man, grows worse and worse. And uh, he's at, at odds. The works of the flesh uh, the, and the, the spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, they're, they're, they're literally, the scriptures say, they're entrenched in warfare against one another. Like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, perhaps. Yeah. So nine times he talks of those who endure some kind of suffering, but are happy being assured of heaven's promise, of the kingdom, of, of God's comfort, their inheritance, being satisfied by him, obtaining mercy, the hope of seeing God, uh, the reality of being children of God, and then looking to the reward of it all. That was only eight. He says nine times, but he repeats two concerning the kingdom. But who was counting, right? 
Who was counting? Oh, good. All right. The wise are happy because they trust in the hope and the promise of God's word, even when life gets stormy. In fact, it's the stormy life that causes them to look beyond and look forward to what God has promised. They're happy about that. And in spite of all they suffer, they see themselves as God sees them, image bearers who represent Christ as salt and light with the responsibility of pointing people to the Father. That's Matthew 5, 13 through 16. The wise have heard and they've heeded the Lord's moral directive, which transcends the best of all human moral philosophy, touching the issue of anger, lust, adultery, sexuality, and divorce, the integrity of a man's word, retaliation, and the love of enemies. Matthew 5, 21 through 48. The wise are those who have received the Lord's instruction regarding true piety, godly charity, and spiritual disciplines in terms of giving, prayer, fasting, priorities, and faith. Matthew 6, 1 through 34. Through Christ's teaching, the wise have been humbled in regard to hypocrisy, encouraged to preserve in prayer and persevere in prayer. They've been warned of destruction, warned of the danger of false prophets, the dangers of false piety, and the reality of the day of judgment. Matthew 7, 1 through 23, which then brings us right here to Jesus' illustration of two builders who've heard his sayings, and now he leaves them with the question of how will you respond to it? What will you do with it all? How will you heed what you have heard? Will you reap my reward or will you fall by your own folly? So for example, and this really is the best way to examine our lives is through the scriptures. But as an example, if we took a good look at your marriage, would we liken you to the wise or the foolish? What would we consider you? Would we find you building on the rock or would we see you struggling in the sand? Would we be inspired by how it's being built, or would we stand by and anticipate your fall? Now, when I consider the biblical content on marriage, which I review frequently because there's no end to premarital counseling and weddings in this church, uh, not to mention babies, I'm inundated with data consisting of God's purpose, design, role, roles, and responsibilities for marriage. Inundated with it. You know, premarital counseling is usually enjoyable because, you know, the couple is so agreeable, in love, optimistic, and completely naive. (laughs) It's those who have been married and have made a mess of it that are so difficult. And more and more couples these days have less and less knowledge of what God has instructed regarding marriage, and so the mess keeps on getting messier. I read a statistic that roughly only 20% of families consist of both biological parents in America. We're the worst in the entire world. The worst. What is troubling to me are those who know what the word of God says, but like the fool, the foolish builder, they refuse to apply its principles, which leaves them to build their marriage on the sand, and the relationship is falling apart even as they build it. And if they refuse to repent and yield to God's holy will for their marriage, all we can do, if they refuse, all we can do is stand by and watch them destroy each other as the rain descends and the floods rise and the winds blow against them. You guys, marriage man's way is always a train wreck. It's foolish. 
But those couples that are committed to abiding by the instruction of God's word, they're a blessing to each other and to those around them. Who loves a healthy marriage? Everybody does. What if we took a good look at your parenting? Would we liken you to the wise man or the foolish? Would we find you building on the rock or struggling in the sand? You know, when I consider the content, the biblical content on parenting, which I review frequently, because there's a lot of parents in this church, and there's a lot of babies being born in this church. Babies are making parents really fast, aren't they? Babies, or parents make babies, and babies make parents. When I look at all of the data in the Bible, I'm inundated with material of purpose, of design, and responsibilities pertaining to family discipleship. Some families are an absolute delight because the parents have been so intentional to train, to discipline, and build relationships with their kids according to the instruction of God's word. It's not that they don't have difficulty. Some children will stray. Children and parents have their challenges, differences in personalities, individual wills. How many parents in here have sin natures? So do your kids. But overall, those parents who are diligent in their parenting, they're enjoying the fruit of it. But those parents who ignore the biblical directives for parenting and insist on their own way or prefer this psychologist or that parenting expert over the teaching of scripture are not enjoying biblical fruit. Only God's word secures his ends. Apart from the scriptures, our children are too vulnerable to the world and and the enemy of their souls. So parents must be diligent. How are we building? Now, honestly, we could go on and evaluate every context of life, all of which is discussed in scripture. And we could do that to see what we are, to see if we're a wise builder or a foolish builder in the sand. But looking and considering at what Jesus has said here, the reality is we must all be the students of God's word. We must be consuming its content, gleaning from its its teaching, and then by the grace of God, living according to his instruction. And let me, I want to tell you how this must happen. It's the only way that it can happen. We must revive in our personal creed the doctrine of the Bible's sufficiency. We must revive that in our creed and in our minds, trusting that only the scriptures can meet our deepest needs and equip us for everything that God has called us to. In terms of marriage, of parenting, even friendships, our relationship to government, employee to employer, employer to employee, our involvement in the world, our civic duties, how to be a neighbor. The scriptures assign an ethic and provide instruction for absolutely every context of life. We must recognize that for God's people, all of life is religious. I know that people think that, you know, that's what I do on Sundays, or that's what I do around the dinner table. Look, that mentality is not Christian. Jesus calls the believer's life under the umbrella of religion. I know we've come into the era of, I'm not religious, I'm in a relationship. Um, But James says that if you're a Christian, you're religious, okay? So I'm gonna appeal to the authority of the scriptures on this one. But all of life for us, you guys, must be religious. It must be. The word of God must, it must have a say in everything that we do. We can't exclude it from any activity, no responsibility. The input of his word must have the final say on every subject it addresses. If we're going to honor him and experience his benefits, we must 
We must acquaint ourselves with his word. We must, by his grace, by the enablement of his spirit, walk in it. You know, I've always thought that even though the world hates us, they ought to envy us. They will hate us. They do hate us. They hated Jesus. He says, they'll hate me. He says, you hate me because I testify that your deeds are evil. Uh, That's preaching the gospel right there. We cannot preach the gospel without testifying to the evilness in man. We call men to repentance, which implies that they're sinners. The world hates us, but they should envy us. The fruit we enjoy, the fruit that we should be enjoying because we are abiding in God's word should be provoking them to jealousy. Our families, our work ethic, our treatment of others, our love for one another, our benefit to society, the general management of our lives, you guys, we should be crushing it. I mean, we have the word of God and the spirit of God that seems to be enough, amen? The world around us is being gutted by its own worldview. I mean, their house is collapsing in upon them, okay, because they've embraced secularism. But by God's grace, his benefits ought to be on full display in our lives for the whole world to see. Let me give you some authority on that statement. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Is marriage a good work? Is parenting a good work? It is. They may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So not only should our lives stand firm against the contrary elements of this life, our lives should be on display for the world to see. The product of his word working itself out in our lives is meant by God to be an apologetic for the gospel. Not an apology, an apologia, a defense, a reasonable defense for people to consider the gospel. He meant for our lives to be on display so that the world could see how a house ought to be built. So heed his word and be an example to the world. Amen? Yeah. All right, we're this far. Let's, uh, let's finish the chapter. It's, it's quite lengthy here. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What does that mean? (laughs) So the people, their, their minds were blown because Jesus taught, it says, as one who had authority, that is, one who had authority in himself as opposed to the scribes. You see, the people were used to hearing the scribes quote, a dead rabbi who gave their interpretation that was based on the interpretation of another dead rabbi who quoted another dead rabbi, and so on. This genealogy of rabbis created what is called rabbinical oral tradition, which then created rabbinical Judaism, from which Judaism today derives most of its orthodoxy. And then from this oral tradition later came, or it developed into what is called the Talmud. It's a very lengthy volume of rabbinical sayings and interpretations of the Old Testament. Uh, If you've read more than five minutes of it, you want to pull your hair out, okay? It's a hatchet job uh, of the scriptures, most of it. Uh, Some of it is fine, but most of it is nuts, okay? Filled with superstition and all kinds of wild things from the rabbis. Uh, This oral tradition is what Jesus alluded to in chapter five when he said multiple times, you have heard that it was said, the oral tradition of this genealogy of rabbis. You have heard that it was said 
in the oral tradition. Dead rabbi, or one rabbi quoting a dead rabbi. And they're saying things concerning these particular passages, but Jesus says their interpretation missed the mark. So Jesus, who has authority in himself, that is, he has final authority on the interpretation of his own word, would then say, but I say to you, but I say to you. And then he would give the people God's intended meaning of those passages. You see, in this, Jesus dismissed all of rabbinical tradition because as the son of God, their interpretation meant nothing to him, even when they got it right. We'll talk about that in Matthew chapter 19. One of them got it right on a particular subject and everybody else were just crazy, okay? And of course, we know Jesus will rebuke the Pharisees for elevating their traditions above the word of God. The word of God should stand alone. So Jesus is the final authority when it comes to the meaning of scripture because he is the ultimate source of all scripture. It is for him to explain what it meant. And because he displayed that kind of authority in his teaching, the people were just like, what is happening here? They were astonished. But this is what we must understand by all of this. Because Jesus is the final authority, it is for us to hear and to build meticulously, to hear carefully, to listen carefully, and to build meticulously. That's why he said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Okay, let's pray. Go ahead and stand up if you will. Father, we thank you for sending your son, the, the word of life, the living word, to not only explain everything in the past, but to give us everything for life and godliness for the future. All that we have, Lord, in the New Testament. And Lord, I, I, I know that if, if the only, that if people are only hearing the word taught on Sunday mornings, my exposition of your word, and they're not consuming the word in their daily lives, applying it to all context of life, Lord, the building is not going to be sound. So I pray, Lord, that, that the people of Calvary Chapel, Lord, that you would just fill them with strong conviction that you gave the word to them for their sake, Lord, for your glory, and that they would just dig in and study. And Lord, those that are intimidated by the scriptures and don't feel like they have the skill to do that, Lord, there's a lot of, a lot of people in this church that do have the skill that would love to come alongside them. Lord, you've called us to be disciples and to make disciples. Help us to be humble enough to be a disciple. Lord, help us to get your word in us so that it can manifest itself in everything we do in life. Lord, for your glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.